the Real Wolf Record Club. The only club in all of Interland that uh, takes and dissects and reassembles some of the greatest albums of all time. Arguably. Arguably the greatest albums of all time. We'll, we'll get to the arguably part shortly. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm your host of the Real Wolf Record Club. And we've got a very special show today. Today we're discussing one of the most iconic albums of all time. Uh, certainly in pop rock, experimental rock, however you want to call it. It is the Beach Boys Pet Sounds. The Beach Boys Pet Sounds we are discussing. Uh, but I know what you're thinking. I know you're sitting there, dear listener, out in Radio Lander podcast world thinking this is exactly what the world needs right now is more discussion about pet sounds uh this album is so ubiquitous it is a if you're like me if you're like ben your mind immediately went to fred armison on portlandia <laughs> talking about <laughs> talking of what is it ben uh they use this on pet sounds <laughs> a lot of things were used on pet sounds a lot of things were used on pet sounds which the more you learn about the album you realize that that's actually a very funny joke because they used a lot of instruments on pet sounds but i assure you we're going to do it in a in a much better way than anyone else has done it because we're going to do it with a very special guest our special guest is the one the only the is it inimitable or unimitatable <laughs> I think we talked about that before. It's the 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 one, the only, the very special Ward Sutton. Ward Sutton is our guest today, and he is going to discuss pet sounds with us. We're going to pull it apart, and we're going to give it our our very own spin on it at the end. As you know, dear listener, Real Wolf Record Club gives it our own review, our own spin. Because if you're a record collector, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's records that you you just hate. You want to bury them. You want to get rid of them. You toss them. You throw them in the garage sale. You throw them in the garage and forget about them and then sell them years later for nothing. Or you want to borrow it. It's the type of album you want to you wanna listen to maybe a few times, but you don't need to own it. Or you want to buy it because that's what vinyl heads are. We, we collect. We must own. So we want to buy it. And sometimes it's just so good that you know you're going to play the heck out of that record. And for the kids at home who don't know what that means to play the heck out of a record, it means you're going to ruin the record. It's going to be scratched and worn, and you're going to need a second. So you're going to buy it again. One to rock, one to stock. And that's what we're going to do today with Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. So digging in, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, Pet Sounds is an album released by the Beach Boys. It's arguably the uh and they use it as a euphemism but it's arguably brian wilson's solo album it's the album that that represented a break it's the album that was uh very different from what we all experienced um when we come to find out come to think about the pets or excuse me beach boys when we think about surf rock when we think about americana when we think about be true to your school pet sounds was vastly different it was released, it's the 11th studio album, and it was released in 1966. Originally it came out, it, it wasn't widely regarded as, as some of their stronger material, uh, but it's got an, undergone a reappraisal in the last probably 20 years, I would say, with the advent of indie rock and a lot of the, the diversification among genres, the different styles, people have recognized it widely as a masterpiece as a masterpiece of the band and as a masterpiece of the writer Brian Wilson. But before we go further um, and talk about what, what the album is, it's so iconic that I think you could speak forever about it. I'd like to turn to the panel 
and I'd like to bring in Ward Sutton and get started a little bit with our, 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 our initial expectations. Turning to this album, I'd like to introduce Ward Sutton. Ward, welcome to the show, The Real Wolf Record Club. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, Ward, you've heard me talk about Pet Sounds a little bit. I'd mm -hmm. love to know, and I think it's a lie if we all pretended we weren't familiar with this. <laughs> we uh -huh. knew a little bit about the album. But I'd yeah. love to know, digging into it, The Real Wolf Record Club style, what was your initial expectation listening to the Pet Sounds album? Well, uh, yeah, I didn't just listen to it now. It's It's been many years, but uh, I have to admit that when I was uh, younger, back in high school, I was I was kind of a geek in terms of music, not a good music geek, but a geek who didn't know anything about music. When I showed <laughs> up at college, I uh, my roommate uh, said, you know, you've, all you've got is a shoebox. You've got a little shoebox with cassette tapes in it. That's it. And he'll still bring that up. And I tried to get into if I tried to get in a musical argument with him, he's like, you and your fucking shoebox. <laughs> um, but I've, I've gone on to really get into music quite a bit. And uh, even though I don't have musical talent myself, I, I admire music. I admire musicians and I've worked in record stores and things like that. Um, but back then when I was in high school, I listened to the goody goody Beach Boys, the be true to your school. And um, I get around and that kind of stuff. And it was sort of simplistic and I liked it at the time. And then as I got a little older, I kind of, it, it kind of, I went the other way and it just totally turned me off for a while. Like this is, this is treacly, this is horrible. Mm -hmm. um, but then I started reading about pet sounds, which I'd already always kind of ignored because it looked sort of weird. Like I didn't, I didn't recognize the songs on it. And it, you know, it didn't have the hits I was looking for when I was in high school and but then I started, uh, I saw the documentary, I Just Wasn't Made for These Times uh, about Brian Wilson. And that really turned me on to it. And I read Paul McCartney's uh, huge endorsement of the album. Mm. And I've always been a big Beatles fan. And so then when I finally got into it, um, it also gave me a reappreciation for the older Beach Boys music because I started to realize how sophisticated those songs were, even if the themes were kind of simple at times. Mm. Um, but I'd also say that I didn't necessarily immediately take to Pet Sounds. You know, it took me a little bit of listening to it over and over again and kind of reading others' appraisals of it to realize, mm. like, how deep the music was. And, uh, and now it's become one of my all-time favorites. Mm. Well, and that's that brings up a really interesting point, which we'll obviously touch on this. But, but in many of our conversations, we go back and forth about... Uh, not quite a debate, but just recognizing in some cases, some albums, the importance of context and recognizing, um, you know, there's a, there's a Sean Lennon quote that talks about what, you know, very similar, what he thought of the album coming into it and then his later take on it. And just the context of, of music sometimes enhances or, or diminishes our appreciation of, of the music. Um, ben, I'm curious to know your initial expectations. Gonna, yes. I was just going to say real quick, it's funny that you mentioned Sean <laughs> Lennon because right about the time I was starting to hear about and get interested in Pet Sounds, I saw Sean Lennon in concert. And he, he, from the stage, he said, this is, this is one of the best songs ever. And it's by the B and I thought it was, he was going to say Beatles. And he said the beach boys. And 
kind of thought he was, yeah. was joking. But then he played, I think he played God Only Knows. And then mm. I realized that, okay, this is a serious thing. But anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, and that's, and I love those moments where you, where you kind of in the musical world, especially just the connection from inspiration to writer, to performer, to, you know, through decades of time that that can happen. Um, I, I'm curious to know that because I think that's a, I don't want to say it's unique as if it's not uh, insightful, but you it's not a unique experience to come to this album expecting one thing. Um, ben, what was your initial expectation for Pet Sounds? My initial expectation, I can honestly say I've never listened to Pet Sounds, like front to back, like sat down, listened to Pet Sounds. I know I've listened to songs on Pet Sounds. I've listened to you know plenty of Beach Boys songs, but never like sat down and, and digested this album. So it was actually a, a pretty interesting experience for me. I was expecting it to be some type of enhanced version of what I expected of the Beach Boys, kind of that surf rock and you know just that that sound, kind of easy to digest. And so I I thought, well, if it's this high on the list, there's got to be something more. So I was hoping to kind of be surprised and uh find out kind of what the what the hype was about that that kind of is just i think going to be a theme with some of these albums you know they're so widely regarded whatever whatever list you pull it from whether it be the rolling stone list or whether it be um any other list it's it's so widely regarded it's hard not to have an opinion and certainly with the beach boys it's hard not to have an initial reaction especially when they name themselves the beach boys i i wonder if they regretted that down the road if they thought you know we you know especially brian wilson who with what we know about his background with i mean you, you can look up all the anecdotes about having a panic attack on a flight and essentially not formally quitting the band but but kind of steering away and causing a rift about what the music was going to sound like on this album i wonder if he looked back and thought well why do we name ourselves the beach boys because that's what everyone expects and if we give them pet sounds it doesn't sound a whole lot like the beach but that's for maybe another podcast. Um, Hannah, I'm curious to know your initial expectations. Is it is it in line with that, or did you have a different um, approach to what you thought this album would be like? Similar to Ben, I was like, oh, yeah, the Beach Boys, Surf and Safari. This is going to be fun. And I actually I knew... heard her say that, too. It was just like that. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I, I knew Pet Sounds had a reputation that there was something big something special about it but you know like ben i never sat down and just listened to it you know from you know cover to cover and um i knew the hits and that was about it but i thought it was gonna be you know our, our typical beach boys that were i think most of us are are familiar with so yeah i was anticipating something easy breezy ryan were you anticipating easy breezy or or something else well, uh, I have a little more history on this album just because in college, uh, singer-songwriter at my local school, St. John's University, go Johnnies, um, he, he was a musician that was a friend of mine, played at our local establishments around our school, and he talked about the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds almost any second that he could um, when talking about music. So that made me listen to it. I don't know, it's 19 years ago in college and started listening to this album that I would never would have picked out because my musical tastes were so different at the time. So yeah, it was an album that I had listened to quite a bit. 
and and enjoyed based off of uh you know that person i respected and, and knew as a, a great musician but it had been many 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 years since i'd listened to it so i was curious to to think you know if my musical taste changing and and just knowing how i've i've changed what i listened to going back from college to now you know, if I'd still like it in the same way. <laughs> and I love that point, Ryan, because that is something we all do, or we try to do certainly is check our own biases, um, our own biases when we come uh, to music and, and frankly with life, recognizing where your blind spots are in a, in the context of a music review or music appreciationist society. That's actually a word, by the way, appreciationist society, according to the old lady at the Falconry Center in England about five years ago when she showed up in the Rolls-Royce Appreciationist Society. So <laughs> I learned that word that day. This is a music appreciationist and review society. Uh, but it is it, within that context, it's definitely a blind spot. We all have certain blind spots. My blind spot as you'll probably see, is I love music and I rake everything very high. Everything's a bite. I give me it all. I collect it all. Um, everyone's got their own biases. Everyone's got their own things uh, that we bring to music. And I think just like context, recognizing where where it is, how is your music being, your taste being influenced by your own, either your preconceived notions or the context or the, your likes and dislikes, I think is a fascinating aspect to how we actually experience music. So with that, we've got a lot more to come here on the Real Wolf Record Club, but you too can join in the conversation. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Join us at realwolfrecordclub.com. At that website, you can sign up to follow us, join our mailing list. You can even, and we'll talk more about this, you can even purchase some duds, some Real Wolf Record Club. Is it is duds? Does that mean like clothes? <laughs> i think so okay yeah. well, well i'm Some gonna trust digs. the expert yeah your digs yeah. or your duds or your threads either way um <laughs> you can purchase some real wolf record club merchandise with artwork designed by our very own ward sutton we'll be back after this with more ward sutton and beach boys pet sounds Welcome back to the Real Wolf Record Club. We're diving back into pet sounds with the Beach Boys, but with us today is our special guest, the one, the only, Ward Sutton. And, 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 and I say that name, Ward Sutton, and if that name means something to you, it's because you've seen his work in the New Yorker, or GQ, or the Boston Globe, the New York Times, or maybe it's because you're familiar with his highly highly collectible tour prints for artists like pearl jam and beck and fish or maybe back before the pandemic in 2018 you attended the herb block her block her block his name was herb herbert block and then he combined it to be her block as his kind of pen name well whatever it is you might know ward's name from attending the 2018 Herblock Foundation Awards and saw him take home the grand prize. Or if you're really, really listening, and you know that name, it's because you're a fan of the comedy central cult classic Strangers with Candy, starring Amy Sedaris, Stephen Colbert, and Paul Dinello. Or, in particular, you're familiar with the opening credits of season two and three. Or even more particularly... You're familiar with the hit-and-run episode of season two where he played on screen the role of sketch artist. 
That's perfect for a cartoon. It's just cast them all. Just typecast them all as sketch artists. If you know the name Ward Sutton, you know good art. You know good political commentary. You know good uh, good cartoonism when you see it. Welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club, Ward Sutton. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you guys. Uh, Ward, you've been published in a variety of publications. And now with the TV and internet, a variety of mediums. We all know there's an origin story of every superhero, every author, every artist, every impeached ex-president. They're all very well known. So tell us, please, what is the origin story of Ward Sutton, the artist and cartoonist? Well, I guess uh, for an origin story, I'd have to go all the way back to first grade. I won a, an art contest at Saks Fifth Avenue. And uh, they put my artwork up in the store um, and uh, this, we were, my family was living in New Jersey briefly for, I grew up mostly in Minnesota, but we lived for three years in New Jersey. And that's when I won this award. And that kind of struck me like, hey, this is kind of cool. <laughs> and uh, that, that kind of got me going, but, or encouraged me. I, I feel very lucky that I had a lot of encouragement all the way along um, from both teachers and my parents. They've always been supportive. And that I owe a lot to that because it could be very easy to be dismissed, but people kept, teachers would exempt me from doing homework and schoolwork and just let me sit in the back of the class and draw comic books. Um, and then they'd take my art and they'd put it up on the wall. And it, you know, it just kept feeding my desire to keep creating things that people would see and react to. Um, I started out by tracing comic books and then I would try to look at the comic book and draw it myself and then I started creating my own characters and it just kind of grew from there and uh, when I was in grade school the parent of one of my uh, friends uh, was working for the, the Edina Sun newspaper the local newspaper for where I lived and said have you ever done editorial cartoons and I was like no I'm in fifth grade I've never done that <laughs> <laughs> uh, she said, well, why don't you try doing some and I'll see if I can get them published. And she and so I ended up doing cartoons for the local paper on issue, hard hitting issues like should the high school get a new all weather track for their track team? And stuff like that. <laughs> the heavy stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and you mentioned your 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 earliest comic work you know, where you trace some, some known comics or published comics and you made your own characters. Do you recall your first character? Yeah, I did a comic book. I collaborated with a friend called Roboticus and it was like a man who through some freak accident, of course, you know, gets melded with a robot. And so he's part robot, but has the, the soul of a man. And uh, he's trying to figure out his life and he has, you know, his, his arms can elongate in like metal links. And mm. it was, we made a series of them and that the teacher took the first issue and laminated it to make sure it would never get ruined. So that was kind of oh. nice. Does it exist somewhere? Oh yeah. I've got, I've got copies of them. Oh, so you, 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 you've kind of given us the backstory. Where, where did you grow up? Where was it? It was, you mentioned New Jersey sounds like somewhere in Minnesota. What was that? Like most of your time in Minnesota? Yeah, I was born, uh, we lived in Minnetonka, and then we moved to New Jersey for three years for my dad's job, and then we moved back to Edina, and so I basically lived through high school in Edina. Um, and then I went to St. Olaf College, um, and then I lived in Minneapolis for a couple of years, and then I moved to Seattle, 
Um, and I was there, just happened to be there during, I moved there right before Nirvana's Nevermind album came out. And uh, I had some good luck of just being in the middle of a whirlwind there that was a lot of fun. And in 1995, moved to New York City, which had been sort of my, my goal since college as a aspiring artist to try to live in New York City. Mm. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that, that moving to a, a certain area, you know, comedians and actors always head to California and L.A. Is, is that kind of the reverse for art, the art world? Is, the, is New York the place to be for that or is there somewhere else? It, it really felt like it was at the time, you know, um, especially for me when I wanted to work in print media, which was, you know, I wanted to be illustrating for Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, that was really one of my biggest goals. Nowadays, I don't know if it would be the same or not, because with so much online and social media and the internet, I don't know how much you really physically need to be there, but I was really glad I went. It felt important to me to be there. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the inspiration you mentioned. It sounds like obviously, um, you know, either at home and at school as a kid, you had inspiration. Was there something about, I don't want to I don't want to betray your age or anything, <laughs> but was there something about the times you grew up in that gave you inspiration to, to use, use art to talk about the world or talk to the world? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think I realized in high school, um, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed drawing. I, you know, I kind of started out superheroes, things like that, just using creativity. Um, uh, I liked a lot of the pop culture that, you know, Star Wars that a lot of people liked. Um, but I think it was in high school where I started, I became the editorial cartoonist for our school paper and I started making fun of the principal. And I realized I could get away with it. And the students loved it. You know, people are like, I can't believe you can do that. And I was like, yeah, me either. But I'm just going to keep doing it until somebody says something. I mean, it was not, to be fair, it was not like super... <laughs> brutal criticism of the principal, but I was just kind of making fun of him. And the fact that I could do that at all and have it in print and have everybody see it was felt, uh, felt exciting. Mm. And uh, that's just sort of continued, you know, but I, I, I did at some point then as I was kind of, my career was, was, was building, I had to kind of realize that the people I was drawing about were real people too. Like, you know, you can kind of build this thing where, build a feeling where you think I'm it's abstract I'm 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 criticizing somebody and doing this uh these kind of critiques in my drawings and everything but I had a few times where I realized you know these are real people and I have to watch it I guess it goes to the to what we've talked about in recent years as like punching up instead of punching down you know and not you know picking on the little guy um and so I, I had a few lessons to learn about that, I think. But I'm happy to, to punch the big guy. <laughs> <laughs> is, is all your work political? And has it been more, more uh, difficult or easier to work during these past few years? I'd say that it, uh, my work shifts a fair amount. You know, I've done a lot of cartoons on uh, entertainment. I had a strip for a while called Schlock and Roll that was all about music um, for a number of years. Um, and I like being able to be kind of broad and, and cover different things. Um, but the different times I've gone through have felt, have made me feel that I needed to 
focus more on politics. And the Trump era is certainly one of those, you know, that politics have kind of taken over what I do quite a bit over the, the Trump years. Um, and now this year I've been breathing a little easier and branching out and doing some other things too, which feels really good because I was getting a little bit burnt out. And in terms of, is it easy or hard with during Trump? There's certainly no loss for material and, and things to comment on. But one of the difficult things is that the news cycle moves so was moving so fast during those years because something could be the big news story in the morning and by the afternoon, there's a whole other news story, you know? And so it's like a moving target, kind of hard to, uh, kind of hard to, to, to time what you're doing right so that it still feels relevant by the time it comes out. Because what I do, I have to write the piece, I have to get that approved, then I have to draw it. And then, you know, this all takes a number of days. It's not as easy as just making a meme. And so, you know, memes are something cartoonists are competing with now because <laughs> you can bank out a meme immediately. Um, so I, uh, anyway, I'm kind of going off on a tangent there, but. Uh, let's let's shift a little bit because you know this is uh, the Real Wolf Record Club. We talk music. Um, we're all about full disclosure, and my full disclosure here, dear listener, and fellow members of the the Record Club. Um, no, this is not my resignation speech, although I probably will sound a lot like this. Um, I came across your work uh, many, many, many years ago. As a, I probably wasn't aware of it at the time, but I definitely remember the poster. I just didn't know it was yours. I was, it was the summer of sophomore year in high school, 1998, June 30th at the Target Center. The band Pearl Jam was playing and Frank, brought, Frank Black and the Catholics were opening. And I remember seeing this wonky, goofy, crazy good print with these just fantastic um i would describe them and it's not going to do it justice but as 70s camp coloring that i just can't get enough of the browns and the rust and the the lime greens and it turns out that that was your poster that was your print and I came across Ward years later when I thought back, getting nostalgic in my old age, that I'm going to track down that poster. And I found how highly, highly, highly collectible that poster is. And for those of you who aren't aware of the um, rockin' world of rock art, it's there are some very, very talented artists with some very highly, highly collectible prints out there. And Ward is one of them. So Ward, how did you get connected to rock posters, rock prints in that world? Uh, well, <clears throat> when I moved to Seattle, uh, I really moved there for love because the woman who is now my wife was living there, and that's why I wanted to go to Seattle. But I wound up stepping into this cultural whirlwind of the grunge music scene, and just as uh, musicians were moving to Seattle to get record contracts, cartoonists were moving there to try to work with the underground publisher Fanographics and all sorts of other creative types were just congregating to that to that uh, Northwest area. And so I quickly picked up on this culture of, of poster design for, for concerts. And back then it was just black and white Xerox posters that would be stapled up on telephone poles. And it, it, there was this whole subculture that I could walk around and I'd say, oh, there's a Jeff Kleinsmith or, oh, there's an Art Chantry or there's a, 
uh, Justin Hampton. You know, I, I got to know all the different artists and everybody kind of followed each other's work and there, there was sort of a healthy competitive aspect to it, but also nobody was making any money. It was just kind of for fun and to be creative. And, uh, and when I would get the chance to do some of these Xerox posters, I would just get paid in beer or a concert ticket. But, but it was fun. Um, and what happened was uh, in close to the mid nineties, I guess around 94, um, this, this uh, woman ran for city council on the ticket that she was going to clean up the city from these ugly posters that were everywhere. And sadly, she won the election and she <laughs> got anti-postering ordinance passed. And so postering on telephone poles, which she deemed dangerous to the telephone pole workers or whatever, um, was, was outlawed. So this, this creative outlet for all these designers was suddenly cut off. Um, and a guy named Art Chantry, who is sort of a, a godfather of design in this realm, he worked with a club named Mo and started putting out an oversized newsprint publication and each page would be its own poster. And the, the publication was free. And so the artists still had an outlet for, for designing. And one of my designs that I did for this, the, the club owners said, wow, this is so cool. It deserves to be in color. And so they mm. found some silkscreen printers and had them printed in color. And that was how I did my first silkscreen poster. Um, all because of this anti-postering ordinance. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and and do you recall what poster that was? Yeah, it was for a band called Material Issue. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, the, the opening band, I was not told who the opening band was. I wish I would have, because I would have loved to put them on the poster, but it was Weezer. Mm. Oh, really? who went on to be way pop way more popular than material issue ever was. <laughs> uh there is and, that, and that's i i love that that little thread of that whole you've called it a whirlwind a subculture um there are a lot of great great pieces written about what that what that culture of music really was and it's no surprise to me to hear you say that story that there was some band on the bill that didn't make it on there and lo and behold it was a big band named weezer um yeah that's that's fascinating have you continued to do music um music posters throughout the years or is that something that has shifted as you've moved more into to political work i would say that i really it really waned for me at the end of the 90s i got i started to get asked to do posters for music i didn't really like anymore and i guess the way i started following music was changing. And um, I kind of got more swept up into politics because that's right around when uh, Bush became president in 2000 and that, that became a little more dominant for me. But I've been getting more into it lately again. Um, I got the chance to do a Pearl Jam poster uh, last, last spring, even though the concert was canceled, they still put out the poster and I'm hoping to do another one for them. And, uh, then I've been doing just prints of my artwork that are related to musical artists and people have been interested in that. Um, I should jump back for a moment to, uh, to tell you a quick story about that 98 Pearl Jam poster you brought up. Um, I happened to be, you know, I was living in New York at the time, but I had to come back to Minneapolis um, for to see my family, uh, my parents. And while I was there, I was under deadline that I had to get that poster done. 
And I was trying to think of uh, what should I do, you know, because part of my um, approach to those posters was to not depict the band. You know, I didn't want to just do a portrait of Eddie Vedder or something. I wanted to do something that was, I don't know, just more of a, could be a tangent or could be, a, you know, I would, I would listen to the music over and over again that they'd been, uh, you know, the recent albums and, and try to be inspired by that um, or just build off a tangent of something. And, and so I was trying to think of what to do. And I went over to the electric fetus and I was just looking around there and I found this book on the history of GI Joe. Um, and, and it just had all these awesome graphics in it and like of all the packaging of GI Joe over the years and the different designs of the dolls and everything. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. I'm gonna take it. And then I went home and I was like, man, maybe there's some way I can kind of build this in to my poster design. And so I got the idea of making it, you know, cause I was starting to think like, it's really weird that we have these dolls, right? It's like, we're these five, six foot creatures walking around and we create these little totems that <laughs> represent us. It's really a weird thing when you think about it. And so part of what I try to do sometimes with my art is to take a step back and it's like, okay, well, if it was an alien, like if you make it a three-eyed alien and they're looking at a doll of a three-eyed alien, it kind of makes you stop and think about how weird it is that you, that we have dolls like this, you know? Mm. So that's kind of what I, I put into the poster. Um, but it all came about because I was rummaging through electric fetus. <laughs> If it was possible to encapsulate the electric fetus in one little anecdote, that was it. You went there and you found a random book on the history of G.I. Joe at the electric yeah. fetus. I love that. Well, uh, Ward, now is the time in the interview. Um, you've given us so much information uh, and cool insights to kind of your, your life as a political artist, a musical artist. But now is the time when we uh, shift gears just before we get back to the album Pet Sound. And we do what's called Ched Talk. Ched Talk, dear listener. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, we are very honored to have Ward not only as our guest, but Ward, um, he just gave you a great story about uh, creating the beloved artwork for a Pearl Jam show. He also created the lovely artwork for our podcast. You'll probably see it on all, all places where you find your podcast. The wonderful wolf with the the hot rod and the record and his needle, his finger on the needle. That wolf is named Ched, not Chet, not Chad, not Ted, but Ched, and he is now part of this. So we are going to do Ched talk, rapid fire questions with Ward Sutton. Are you ready, Ward? I I, I hope so. <laughs> Ward, the first record you ever bought with your own money. The first record I ever bought with my own money. I believe was the monkey's greatest hits at a garage sale that a friend of mine's family was having. What is the first concert you ever attended? This is a, this is a great question to ask tonight because it was the Beach Boys. I saw the Beach Boys in the very first concert ever at the Metrodome in Minnesota. Oh they, man. They played after a strikers game. I don't know if you guys, I might be dating myself here. If you remember the strikers, the, the, the yes, I do. <laughs> that were post after the kicks, yep. the, the strikers came in the eighties and they brought in the beach boys and the sound was horrible. <laughs> it was a big uh, experiment and it was also really awkward because they, 
you know, the, the game was on the field, right? So the people are in the stands. So you're really far back. And there was like a lone stage on the field and everybody's back in the stands. It was just very, very odd. And they kept all the lights on, like all the, <laughs> it was bright. Like there was no stage lighting or anything. Oh, 30 years into Brian Wilson's career, you need some lighting. That's what I just heard you say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, the questions get progressively tougher from here. Lasers or swords? Lasers or swords? What about laser swords? Um, <laughs> I would, I'd probably say lasers. Yeah. Yeah. What's the favorite piece of piece of artwork you've done as an artist? That I've done myself? Um, wow, that's a tough question. My favorite, probably my favorite concert poster was the Pearl Jam Prague Budapest. It was kind of a play off of Russian uh, Soviet design. Um, I had gone to an exhibit in New York and was really turned on by this. And I thought this would be, I was really, I was really studying it. I bought a bunch of books about it. I was really into it. And the concert uh, by Pearl Jam now in Prague and Budapest, formerly communist countries now turning capitalist, I kind of reversed the I, I used the visual style of Soviet posters, but I made the characters consumers as opposed to just the workers. And so instead of dutifully working in the factory, they're dutifully eating McDonald's. And oh. I, I, I liked both how that turned out thematically and how it turned out visually. And it's funny to look back because I, I did the sketch and I sent it to Ames Bros, who are the people who were in charge of all Pearl Jam's posters at that time. And they're, they continue to do tons of Pearl Jam work. But the I suddenly got cold feet. I had faxed, this is back during faxing, I had faxed in the sketch. And then I suddenly was like, what am I thinking? This is terrible, you know? And so I did this whole other design and sent it thinking, you know, cause I didn't want them to think I was giving them subpar work, but they called back and they're like, no, we love that first one, go with it. All right, our last question in Ched Talk. There are three humans left on the planet, you, Vin Diesel and Carrot Top. Who do you grab a coffee with? I don't drink coffee, so does that exempt me? <laughs> <laughs> Ward Sutton chooses no one. He doesn't drink coffee. And that was Chad Talk. Thank you very much, Ward Sutton. We're going to take a quick break here on the Real Wolf Record Club, and we will come back and dig in and dissect Pet Sounds Beach Boys with Ward Sutton. Welcome back to the Real Wolf Record Club. I'm Joe, your host. We're here with the panel, Hannah, Ben, Ryan, and our special guest, Ward Sutton. I want to invite you all to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and join the Real Wolf Record Club. We're talking about one of the most iconic albums of all time, obviously, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Uh, but I want to invite everybody, if you hear something, if you, if you like something, if you disagree with something, Join the conversation and buy some threads by Ward Sutton, our very own Ward Sutton. Ward, uh, he can be followed. He has a Tumblr page that is filled with fascinating uh, works and, and insights into his work that he's got. He's also got uh, plenty of merchandise for available, both of his own uh, that he's done and also Real Wolf Record Club merchandise at wardsutton.threadless.com. Also, just Google him. I mean, not to give money to Google, but just Google him. He's on there. So, uh, But with that, let's turn to the album of the week. It is The Beach Boys, Pet Sounds. 
Now, one of the things we do here on the Real Wolf Record Club is we try to pull out some of the highlights, some of the lowlights, and see if there's any commonalities or interesting pieces. And there's a lot to unpack here, so let's get to it. I want to start with with the easy one. The easy one, of course, being an album that this is this widely known, this ubiquitous, this this part of the American music experience. I want to start with the favorite song, the favorite song that everyone had, and I'll turn I'll turn to you, Hannah. I'm going to turn to you because I think I already know the answer, but what is your favorite song on this album? <laughs> oh, God only knows. I, I have loved that song for a long time. I know it's not a deep cut or anything. Maybe people would consider maybe super profound off the album, but it's just, even though the lyrics are sparse, there's such fantastic lyrics. Um, you know, talking about how, like a feeling almost like beyond love, how, you know, your life is so meaningful because of somebody's impact in it. Um, and there's something about the tune that is just intoxicating. It's so rich and full and like almost like warming. It's just, I don't know. It's just a great song and I've loved it for years. And even after listening to the entire album, um, you know, over and over again, I just, that one just never fell out of first place for me. It sounds like this song was pretty hands down your favorite track. Is that a fair statement? Oh yeah. <laughs> I, you said the album and the sound is very rich and, and to me, much of this album, whether it be God only knows or other albums is very cinematic. And that, that might be because there's a couple of songs that are just instrumentals, but it's very cinematic. And, and I think at least part of Hollywood agrees uh, if you have seen the movie Love, actually, that scene at the end, which I, I think, Hannah, you indicated that's actual live footage of people greeting each other at the airport. Oh, that's the beginning. Well, at the end, probably, too. Either way, yeah. the point is, <laughs> the point is the same, Hannah. <laughs> Point's the same. The song is playing over over this scene of people greeting each other. God only knows what I'd be without you. It's, it's very powerful stuff. I, I have a feeling we're going to see a bit of a trend here, but... Uh, Ben, Ryan, Ward, is Hannah wrong? What? Is Hannah wrong? She said her favorite song, the best song on this album is God Only Knows. You're is asking Hannah them wrong? if I'm wrong about my favorite song? Yes. That's exactly what okay. we do. Ryan, what was your favorite song on the album here? Oh, I will say Hannah is not wrong. Um, because you, that was my favorite song as well. Wow. I mean... I felt like there was a weight to picking this as my favorite that I couldn't quite bear because I know how well regarded it is by Sir Paul McCartney, other people who are way more musically inclined than me as a musical layman myself. But um, it is, it's just one of those songs that is simple in, in many ways. The lyrics aren't super complex, um, so they'd appeal to people like me or other people who are just there to listen and, and just enjoy a song. But they also appeal to the Paul McCartney's of the world who are, you know, musical geniuses and can really get into the composition and complexity um, of a song. Um, but for me, like simply put, it's just a beautiful song. I will, I would like to note though, that uh, you did reference Paul McCartney. Number one, you called him Sir which I guess just probably feeds that guy's ego. <laughs> but number two, he's also the guy that said the blues were, or the Stones were a blues cover band. 
<laughs> I've read that recently. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, really? how much music does he actually know? <laughs> no, but your point is well taken. And especially when we think about, um, you know, the, obviously we all know the anecdote about uh, this album was Brian Wilson's, I don't want to say homage, but it was um, his his statement, his response to Rubber Soul by the Beatles. This was something that he wrote with that album in the forefront of his mind. And so to know that Paul McCartney apparently heard that is, is pretty powerful stuff. It just speaks to that spasticity of music, how, how thoughts and inspirations and experiences travel around between artists and listeners. Um, ben, I guess you got to settle it between those two. What was your favorite song? Well, I first want to remind the listeners about the first rule of Real Wolf Record Club is that you don't talk about Real Wolf Record Club. Uh, so every, everyone on the panel here is is coming in not having knowledge of any of these a- answers to the questions of what their favorite song was. We have a, a standing policy not to talk to each other about the albums until we meet and talk about them. Uh, so with that being said, kind of a surprise here that we all have the same song. But, but I'll just kind of come at this from a different angle. My perspective of God Only Knows was playing it many times as a wedding DJ <laughs> as one of the preferred slow dance songs or even first dance songs. So I never quite listened to it well enough. Part of what we do in this process in the Real Wolf Record Club is we, we really do dive into an album and uh, the recommendation requirement that we have is that you listen to it at, lo- at least once uninterrupted, end to end, because nobody does that anymore. Nobody listens to an album. And part of that is it gives you the feel of the record, but it also forces you to really listen. And I I feel like we don't do that enough anymore. We don't listen to music. It's just played. (laughs) And it's an on-demand. We we consume what we want to consume. We don't listen to the work of art. And that's one of the things that makes this Pet Sound album such a interesting one to listen to in that way is that it is such a, a, a full piece of, of work, piece of art. Um, but with that being said, I did pick God Only Knows as my favorite track, but it's because when I actually listened to it and I, and I looked at the lyrics, I always expected this to be a love song. I always heard it as a love song, you know, you know God and you know, it, it sounds so loving and joyous. But then you actually look at the lyrics, and to me, you get to the end, and it says, the world could show nothing to me, so what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without you. To me, this is much more kind of codependent, maybe, or very melancholy. Like, I just don't care. Like, you're the one that's that's keeping me going. You're the one that's, you know, keeping me from the darkness, from... You know, what is it? Suicidal thoughts? I don't know. It, it seems something very heavy here. It doesn't seem to me quite like love. It seems more like you're keeping me going. Um, and I would be meeting God if it wasn't for you because you're the one that's keeping me here. So that's the way that I read it and I experienced it when I actually dug into the song. And now to me, I'm thinking this is like a... A, a suicide note that was never written. Like it has a much darker feel to it. And I, I just, I'm experiencing it differently now. It's, it's a very good song too. It's very catchy, but 
I really en- enjoy kind of that duality of the song now where it sounds so, you know, happy, but there's this very, very much like a, a darker underside to it. Well, that's, it's interesting you say that um, because I think, <clears throat> you know, to your point about listening to the album through with, especially with the context we all placed on it about, you know, pre pet sounds, surf rock, Americana, beach boys, you know, girls and cars and, and, and love to then this album coming into this album. I think we might've, I, I certainly expected that this album was going to be that way. And then to hear some of these songs, especially the, the, the opening track, wouldn't it be nice? I don't know that that's actually a love song either. When I hear that song, when you think about it, you don't typically say, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I could just pay my mortgage? Wouldn't it be nice if um, there was enough to eat? Wouldn't it be? Those are usually that's the phrasing that you use, and to the, ex- the intent, the, the the to the extent that artists are intentional in their lyrics, I, I think that's a song that you it opens with, and it sounds on its face as a very, oh, if we could just be married. But it also sounds like another side of it is that there's there's something else going on there that it, maybe you're, you're doing without instead. That's a song about scarcity or deficit as opposed to love and, and companionship. And I think to me, that's a theme that perhaps we'll visit in our point of discussion piece is whether this is a not, a, I don't want to say darker, because I don't know that it's dark, but it's a sadder album than than we might experience. But But before... Before we turn away from our favorite song, um, now that we know Ben thinks this is a suicide note. <laughs> that was never written. <laughs> this should be the title of the episode is God Only Knows is a Suicide Note That Was Never Written. Um, <laughs> join in, kids. Uh, the Real Wolf Record Club. Uh, Ward, what was your favorite song on, on Beach Boys Pet Sounds? Well, I guess I was right along with everybody else. Um, and I have to say, I, I really uh, agree with, with Ben's take. I find the lyrics much more ambiguous than me than they might sound on the cert on first listening. I mean, the first, the very first line is I may not always love you. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like the song you want to play at your wedding. necessarily. <laughs> but it is it's played it's all the time. Um, but I think the, I think it's that contrast between the lyrics that, you know, whether they're dark, I don't, However, you want to describe them. That contrast between that and the and the the warmth of the of the of the music itself, it's to me that's just fascinating. God only knows is so beautiful because because of that edge to it. You know, if it was just a pretty love song, it would be nice. But I think it. I'm I'm with Ben. I it, I have that same feeling when I listen to it. Like, what's really going on? Like, what is this person really thinking as he's as he's singing these words, like, if you should ever leave me, life will still go on. Believe me. Like that's, I don't know. It's a, it doesn't, it's not what you would typically hear in a love song. I don't think. I'm going to break the chain though, guys. I'm going to break the chain here and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that God only knows is not the best song on this album. Uh Uh-huh. All right. God only knows is not the best song. And part of it, again, your own blind spots. Uh, one of the things I've been listening to a lot lately is an album by uh, an artist named Waxahachie. And she released an art- an album uh, at the start of the pandemic, March 27th of 2020. It's called St. Cloud. She has a song called Fire. And at the end of the song, there's this drum kind of kick. 
that kicks in. And I've been really listening to that a lot lately. And so I, I'm saying that only to highlight why my favorite choice was not God Only Knows, although that is an excellent song. And yes, I agree with with Paul McCartney. It's it's a pretty darn close to perfect song. The song that I kept gravitating towards because of those little instrumentation pieces that we've all referenced. You know, Ward, you talked about some of the children's toys. Um, there's been, there's a, a bike horn in there. There's soda cans that are being shook. There's a lot of things going on. But it just, for me, it came back to how the drums played out on this one part in the one song, the last 30 seconds. It's my favorite moment on the entire album. The last 30 seconds of the song, I'm waiting for the day. Again, not not really a love song. If you read the lyrics closely, it sounds like a guy who's waiting on somebody who's, you know, why do why do good guys always get stiffed by the girls and the bad boys always get the, you know, fall in love? That kind of sentiment. The last 30 seconds of that song where the drums kick in, you didn't think that I could sit around and let him work. You didn't think that I could sit around and let him watch him take you. I mean, it kind of goes on a little bit like that. And I, it's just, it's heavy and it's dark and it's weird. And there's something very, in such a cool juxtaposition between what we think of the Beach Boys and what they're singing about here. That to me, that song, I just kept hearing it. I'm like, this is this is my song on this album. So... Um, turning on that though, because I think we widely agree that there's some, there's some powerful stuff on this album. Sometimes what's powerful about an album is, was what turns us off, what we're not into. So now we'll turn to the worst song on the album and Ward, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you, you picked God only knows as the top. Where does it go from there? What's the worst song on this album? Well, I really had a hard time with this question because I love the whole album um so my answer is a little bit of a cop-out that um i decided to go with um uh i know there's an answer and really the only reason i'm picking that is because i read the the history that the record company did not want the song hang on to your ego which was the original version of it because they thought it was too overt of a drug reference and they didn't want to be supporting that kind of psychedelic drug talk and so I guess I, as a protest, I would say that's the worst song because the corporate suits shouldn't have a say in the artistic angle of the album. <laughs> Ward Sutton knows there's an answer and he's still sticking it to the man all these years later. <laughs> uh, and, and Ben, I don't want to say there's a lot to choose from, uh, but what was your worst song on this album? For me, the least favorite song is probably Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder. Just because I felt like it's a slow album like the the pace isn't fast but that one got very slow and and the i think it's a hi-hat in the background felt very metronomy but it was very slow so it's just like it was almost kind of lulls you to sleep although uh, on the flip side of that there's this very flowing groove in the background and i i caught it more towards the end of the song and i was like this could 100% be on a Pink Floyd album. Like it was just was this very kind of cool, like atmospheric groove. Um, I, I think overall, this is just a very complete album where there isn't a lot of highs for me and there isn't a lot of lows. And I don't say that in, in a way that it's it's one note, but it was very hard to to pick out the highs and lows for me. I have a way to kind of, discuss that uh, that i'll talk about later on bated breath uh ryan uh what was your least favorite album or excuse me least favorite song on the album yeah this this was a tough question i had to frame it a little differently in my mind where 
um, least favorite or, you know, track I didn't like, I had to kind of think of it differently and thought, think about what I would say is the least essential song on this album, which helped me decide a little bit better, um, which I decided was one of the instrumentals, Pet Sounds. It's not a bad song by any means, and I, I had trouble deciding between a you know, an instrumental or a song with lyrics, but of the two instrumentals, this one just didn't really stick out to me um, and was really missing one of my favorite parts of the whole album, which is the depth of the lyrics. Um, so being an instrumental, it was just inherently, you know, not going to be in my, my top my top songs and, and near the bottom of the list um, for what's on the album. Hannah, what about your your least favorite? Um, we've heard this is the, this go around. There's been a little bit of a variation. What was your least favorite song on the album? For me, it was Caroline. No, I ended up choosing it not because necessarily like I didn't dislike the song or anything, but um, as the last song on the album, you know, it just I kind of came away just feeling like the wind was out of my sails and um, just kind of like sucked the joy out of me. It's probably it was, you know, part of the intention of the song, but it just casts a cloud on the rest of the album for me. Um, so while there wasn't any song on the album that I was like, this song sucks, you know, this one, I was just like, wow, this song's a bummer, man. And that's why I ended up choosing it as my least favorite because Wah wah. <laughs> <laughs> Sad trombone. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of sales, the least favorite song on this album. For every reason that we've described as to why this is a com- compelling album, a vital listen for a music appreciationist, is that it's not kitsch. It's not novelty. It's not camp. It's not uh, the type of music that's written inauthentically. That's a word. I'm sure of for every, for all of those reasons is exactly why Sloop John B is the worst song on this album. Sloop John B. It's a, what is it? A Bahamian folk song. It's written about sailing and having a bad time doing it. Hmm. (laughs) We've got suicide notes written in the guise of love songs. We've got songs talking about neurotic, um, sad men, We've got uh, a lot going on in this album, and then they just were like, mm, let's roll with this one. It felt, you know, to your point, Ward, talking a little bit about the influence of corporate America or corporate corporate record labels back in the 60s. It felt like a song that was forced to be included. But, dear listener, feel free to disagree with us uh, as part of the discussion. And part of the discussion, obviously, is there's a lot going on here, and there's things that pull out, and and one of the points of discussion we've talked about, and and I think we've already hit on, is that this is a darker album than I think we realize. And I shouldn't say it that way. It's a darker album than at first glance we would think. It looks like a Beach Boys album. It sounds at times a lot like a Beach Boys album. But Ben, to your point, the pacing, it's kind of a slower album, slower song. And Ward, to your point, rereading and reconsidering the lyrics it's a little bit darker than we might might think. It's not necessarily as to be taken at face value. It, it, it is, I think, a darker album than we realize. Uh, and, and maybe that adds to the complexity. Ben, you had a comment during your discussion as a, way, as, as a, as a concept or a framework of how we could think about this album. What is that? 
To me, this is musical lasagna. And maybe I was hungry when I was taking my notes. But <laughs> it's like there's so many layers in each song. But they're all good. I mean, it's like, mmm, there's some noodles. Mmm, there's some sauce. And here is a fun fact from uh, my college roommate. His mom made lasagna with pepperoni in it. Wow. Next level. <laughs> I don't think that's like traditional Italian or anything. Oh, it's so good. But I mean, it's got the mozzarella. It's got like all of these things. And and what I would say to the listener, this is a necessity to listen to this album on headphones, to like literally block the world out, listen without interruption because there's so many little things. And to get back to the Portlandia skit, also watch the Portlandia skit on, uh, it's called The Studio. So Fred Armisen's character sets up this studio and it's like the field of dreams. Like if you build it, they will come. And so he, he builds it out with all of the stuff that was used on Pet Sounds. This microphone was used on Pet Sounds. This, this, this you know, Canyon. This was used on Pet Sounds. Canyon, Canyon. <laughs> Hilarious. But it, but it does get to, to the to the takeaway of this album is that there's so much that was put into it. There's so much thoughtfulness. There's so much depth of sound. And it's it's that that those layers of that depth of sound that made me think of like this musical lasagna where you're you're slicing through and it's like it just keeps going. And uh that that was my takeaway, my experience of really digging into it and listening to it on headphones best quality headphones you, you have uh, because man, there, there's so much there. There's so many little things, little sounds, little intentional things that were done to, to really make this a, a, a an interesting experience to listen to it. And, and as the, the real wolf record club makes every effort to be inclusive to our listeners overseas who may not be familiar with lasagna, I would direct <laughs> you to the good people at ragu and they have a great <laughs> tutorial on lasagna at your local grocery store. But Ben, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, metaphors aside, it's an album that's deeper, it's richer, it's layered. And that's, to me, that's, what's exciting about music. That's, what's really powerful. Um, is when there's things to think about that you have to revisit, you have to go back to. I was going to just add, uh, building on what on the lasagna theory. Um, I I got the the they came out with a Pet Sounds box set years ago, which I think now you can probably just find on Spotify a version of that. But uh, in the summer of 2001, I was working on this labor intensive animation project where I was just sitting and drawing all day long. And I just played that thing, that box set over and over and over again. You know, you, you wonder who are the people that need 37 false start takes of a certain song. And I was the guy who was listening. To it. <laughs> and it's really fascinating with this album because Brian Wilson was so, he so knew what he wanted. I mean, it's such an interesting thing to follow an artist who is, he's, he's really got a vision, you know, and, and you'll hear things that you think, I could see a lot of people thinking that was a good take, but no, he had to do it over again, you know, and then the next one's a little different and you, you keep hearing the layers and you realize how much, and, and the box set also breaks down like background vocals and certain instrumental parts. And you're, you're, you're hearing the separate parts as well. And uh, it, it was, that was fascinating. I thought. It's it's one of the few albums I think I would do that with. I will also note that the 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 lasagna theory 
is the title of Ben's first DJ album, due to be released in 2032. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back and give you our rating of Pet Sounds. Welcome back to the Real Wolf Record Club. We're here with Ward Sutton and the panel talking about the Pet Sounds album by the Beach Boys. One of the things we like to do with all of our albums when we review and talk about is we like to put it on a playlist. We like to pick a song and put it on a playlist. It can be a playlist uh, referring to time or geography or place or feeling. It can be a hyper-specific playlist for a very specific circumstance that you might hear this song. Uh, ben, I, I want to turn to you because you have, a, 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 when I say hyper-specific, that's your actually middle name is hyper-specific. Uh, <laughs> let's turn to you, Ben. What song off of Pet Sounds would you put on a playlist? Joe, you know me too well, and you know that I love creating playlists, <laughs> very hyper-specific playlist. Uh <laughs> But I'm going to put Pet Sounds on the playlist Wolf, Real Wolf. <laughs> as in and James Bond? As in James Bond, yes. Um, Why is that? Apparently, this, the Pet Sounds song was made to be on a James Bond film, and it was supposed to be called Run, James, Run, uh, but it didn't make the cut, I guess. But after reading about that and you know again in that theme of digging into the album and really experiencing it i read about that and i re-listened to it and i thought this is this is a bond song and it deserves it deserves to be put next to the other great james bond theme songs and uh, you know there's always a great uh, song associated with the bond films uh, and even uh, no time to die by billy eilish which has been playing for like two years <laughs> Uh, but finally gets its spot on film uh, in the Bond movie that <laughs> I don't know if it's even released yet. Uh, but uh, that that's where I'm putting it. I'm putting on Wolf, real Wolf. And what I love about that, if you're if you ever had the pleasure of being at a wedding where Ben was the wedding DJ, is his playlists are the most cerebral because that makes good music, right? When you have to explain why the heck a song like Pet Sounds is Pet Sounds is being played because of the James Bond reference. Uh, Ward, uh, do you have any thoughts on on a song off this album for a playlist? Well, I actually have taken that same song, Pet Sounds, and uh, I back in the day when. Uh, it might be a thing to do to make a compilation CD. Uh, I put it on a CD where I was imagining an unreleased soundtrack from an Austin Powers movie. So I guess <laughs> James Bond, Austin Powers, there's kind of a connection there. I love that. You guys were both on the same wavelength of international men of mystery, uh, one <laughs> intentional, one not. That, uh, <laughs> That is great. Put it on a playlist. That is one of our favorite segments, favorite games to play. And and again, in the interest of inclusivity, compact discs are all available for purchase at Sam Goody and Circuit City. <laughs> Let's turn to the to close out our album here, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. One of the things we do on the Real Wolf Record Club is we want to help you appreciate the music by pulling out the highs, pulling out the lows, and maybe some interesting uh, threads that might come out of that cloth. But we also like to give it our very own rating from the perspective of record vinyl record collectors, of which I think we all are. 
And one of the things records will do is you will bury it. That's one out of four. You don't want this album. Get rid of it. Or you'd borrow it. You'd take it and say, I'll give it a few spins, see how it sounds on vinyl. But you don't want to own it your own. Or you'd buy it. You'd say, it's good enough to own because I'm going to spend it a little bit. Or you would buy it again. Buy it again, meaning so good. You need one to rock and one to stock. That is four out of four. So I'm, I, I have a feeling I know where this is going, but I've been surprised before. We're going to go in roundtable fashion. We'll start with our guest, Ward. What do you do with this album? I give it a four. I, I would rock it and stock it. This is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, I was also going to mention I had the very good fortune to see Brian Wilson perform the entirety of Pet Sounds at Jones Beach in New York back in probably like 98 or something like that. And that's stand as one of my all-time favorite concerts too. He was His backing band was the Wondermans, I think, but they did a great job. Uh, and what an album to replicate live. You, you would think it'd be really hard, but it was mm. pretty cool. So buy it again from Ward Sutton. Ryan, what is your ranking of Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys? I'm going to continue the theme here. It's a buy it again for me as well. I already own it. Um, actually, listening as part of our exercise here as part of the club made me, me break it out again after all these years. So uh, it, it still spun great, but hey, I might need to buy it again just to, just to make sure. And an interesting side note would be to question and wonder and debate amongst yourselves, listeners, whether Ryan already owning this album would actually mean this is a buy it for him because he already owns it. Well, would Ryan buy it again if he didn't already own it? God only knows. <laughs> Hannah, what is this one? For me, this is uh buy it. I thought it was a great album. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to sit and listen to it from um, beginning to end and learn a little bit about the album and what all went into producing it, making it what it was, why it is considered, you know, to be the, the groundbreaking album that it is. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I mean, as far as my personal preference goes and you know, what really sounds good in my ears, this isn't going to be the thing that I just wear out on the turntable because I can't stop listening and I need to play it again and again. But I'll definitely listen to it again and enjoy it again. But for me, I don't need a second to stock and one to rock. Ben, what about you? What is your take on this album? To Hannah's point, I just don't know if this is one that I would wear out. I would go back and listen to it. It's almost that why I say it's a, it's a soft buy it for me. Is because it's probably one where if somebody brought over a stack of records, um, I'd say like, yeah, put put that Beach Boys album on, you know, put Pet Sounds on. Let's listen to half of it, you know. Let's listen to the the A sides or the B sides. Um, I don't know how much I'd do that just sitting alone in my house by myself, but I might. So I I'd like to have it, but I just understand the kind of the significance of the album and the creativity involved, especially after digging into it. So it's one I think I just want to have in the collection, though I probably won't wear it out. And that's it. That's that's where I land too. Mine is a situation where, you know, Ben says I'm an easier grader. He's a hard grader. I think it's also there, there's another layer to this too, though. Part of what makes, especially with vinyl records, but part of what makes music and appreciating music is you know recognizing the forebears 
recognizing what's so significant to the, the the underpinnings of the foundation of modern music this is an album that people will blindly point to as an inspiration and it's hard to really even say what that means i mean it's like saying mozart's an inspiration to music yeah of course <laughs> this is a foundational inspirational piece of of modern music so i would i would buy it for that alone and the plus, of course, is that there's stuff that I really like on it. There's several songs, um, despite my comments about God Only Knows not being my favorite. That's a fantastic song. It's it's a great song. So there's a lot to like here, and that for me makes it a solid buy it. Um, and and speaking of which, we talk about being part of the club, and in a virtual world, and you're listening to this wherever you are, in your car, in your office, in your home office in your kitchen, also known as your home office, or wherever you are during this weird and wild time we live in, one of the things we want to do is make this an inclusive experience, but also make an experience where you can enjoy the album too, and you can rate it too. Because quite literally, I I bought this album during the process. I decided I need this album. I went online to electricfetus.com. It's a local, very famous record store. And speaking of Beatles, not named Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr wore electric fetus shirt so it's it's a very famous record store here uh that you could go to electricfetus.com and you can order if you live in the area you can do a curbside pickup or they can ship it out to you with a variety variety of shipping options i did that and we encourage you as part of the club to find a way to get a hold of this album if you want to buy it on vinyl you can buy it on vinyl if you're like ward and you still listen to cds or tapes I don't want to keep going down that road, Ward, so I won't. Uh, there's a wide variety of mediums that you can hear it or check it out on whatever streaming service you use, but that's part of the club is we encourage you. If you say this is a buy it or to buy it again, find ways to do that. Support your local independent retailers and find a way to buy it because that's what I did here. This is an album I need in my collection. This is an album I want to have part of my collection, so I went ahead and I found a way to get it. And that is what we do here on the Real Wolf Record Club. You've heard a great discussion today with our guest, Ward Sutton. You've heard from our panel. You've hopefully gotten an idea of what the Real Wolf Record Club is all about, and hopefully even more so, what Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys is all about. We want to thank our guest, Ward Sutton. Thank you for being here, Ward. We hope to have you back on soon. And to all of our listeners everywhere, feel free to join in the conversation. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Join the mailing list at realwolfrecord.com, realwolfrecordclub.com. Until next time with our next album, I'm Joe, your host. On behalf of the panel, we thank our guest. Keep listening. This has been the Real Wolf Record Club podcast. Real Wolf Record Club is a production of Real Wolf Productions, LLC, a limited liability company. The show is produced today by Ben Head. Our panelists were Ryan McKinnis, Hannah Vantomi, and I'm your host, Joe Vantomi. Follow us and join the club on Instagram at Real Wolf Record Club. On Twitter at Real Wolf RC. Go to our website to find links to the episodes, upcoming news and information, as well as a link to buy merch from our very own Ward Sutton at www.realwolfrecordclub.com. Join us next episode when we discuss the 1975 folk classic, Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. Hey, baby.